Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In our program yesterday, we initiated a new series, and perhaps uh, with the expectations that I had set uh, over the last uh, number of weeks of programs that we were going to launch into the um, chronological sequence of end-time events, which I'm particularly excited about, and I, uh, I hope that you are as well, because it's, uh, it's all the talk uh, in the churches and in the media right now about things that are happening in the world and what's going to happen next, and are, are we in the tribulation with the plagues and so forth and so on. And we were uh, prepared, and we will get into, uh, I prepared 30 events uh, that I believe are a summation of the prophetic events that are yet to unfold uh, in the world according to the Bible, and they start with today. Uh, Not that we have a prophetic event today, but there are a growing uh, number of people who are suggesting and even declaring that we are in a prophetic event right now. Uh, when in reality, according to the Bible, it's not. It's what uh, we call a type and shadow of future events. Um, that, for instance, we are in the fourth seal of the uh, seven seals of the tribulation in the first half of tribulation. And we'll get into detail and show you scripturally that that's not the case, that the first event that takes place uh, prophetically going forward is a signless event called the rapture of the church. And once the rapture of the church takes place, then the other events flow rapidly, and it will take us all the way through to eternity, which is explained um, in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And so we will get into those, but as I explained over the last couple of programs, and we actually got into it in our last program, that as I was preparing the notes for that, and the scriptures, uh, it became clear to me that there were some key prophetic terms that needed to be explained and compared and contrasted. And that's what we're in, and we started that yesterday. And uh, those terms, there's seven of them, and you can see them on the worksheet uh, that is available here at the radio station under uh, Exploring Bible Prophecy. And we got into the first one of those yesterday, and that is comparing and contrasting the two terms, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And we started out by, by um, pointing out the purpose of the the at the beginning because there are several entities that are listed in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that are referred to as sons of God. And we wanted to explain that so that we knew clearly from Scripture that we were talking about a specific individual 
and that, of course, being Jesus Christ. And I uh, don't want to go back and review those uh, individually, but I did want to take us back to Luke 3 and make a point to you. So let's go to Luke chapter 3, third book in the New Testament, third gospel. Luke, and of course we talked about the two chronologies, the two genealogies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, one being in Matthew, and that one takes the genealogy of Jesus from him back to Abraham, so back approximately 4,000 years uh, to when Abraham was born. And of course the reason for that is um, uh, Matthew, being a Jew, wanted to show the kingship and the bloodline of the Jewishness of Jesus, that he was a Jewish carpenter, but he's also the prophesied king and Messiah. So he takes him back to Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, and that's where we are in Luke chapter 3, Luke, on the other hand, takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam. And uh, it's um, material for another teaching series, uh, but we would uh, we would understand that he is the kinsman redeemer. And we find that concept principally laid out in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, but it's described elsewhere, the kinsman redeemer and also the blood avenger. And those are both basically Jewish terms, but in order to be a, a blood avenger or a kinsman redeemer of anything in Israel, you had to prove a bloodline directly back. So consequently, if you want to prove the bloodline of Jesus, and if Jesus is coming back, and we know that he will from the facts of the Bible, that when he comes back and he breaks the seals, which begins the tribulation period, that is the beginning of the process where Jesus is taking back the earth from Satan. And you say, well, I didn't know Satan had the earth. Yes, the Bible is very clear that the earth uh, is the kingdom of Satan. This is his world. He is the prince and the power of the world. And you say, well, God has that. Yes, he does. He has the overarching, if you will, the ultimate authority. He's allowing this to happen as part of his plan, this 7,000-year plan from creation to eternity, in the uh, from Genesis to Revelation. He is... The, uh, the supreme authority, the supreme God, the creator God. And, of course, Satan is a created be being created by God. And, of course, he was not created in a sin state. He was created in a uh, perfect state as Lucifer, but in his free will he chose to sin and fell out of relationship with God and consequently became Satan, the father of lies. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they lost the dominion that God had given them over the earth. They had lost it, and it was transferred to Satan. We know that because when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan that, that started his earthly ministry at the age of 30, that he immediately went into the wilderness. He was there for 40 days. And at the end of that that uh, 40 days in the wilderness, Satan came to tempt him. He was hungry. He was thirsty. In other words, as a human being, Jesus was at the end of his rope, if you will, as from a human perspective, hungry, tired, thirsty. And that's when Satan tempted him. And one of those temptations was, I will give you the world, Jesus. And the only way he could give the world to Jesus is if he had it. So there's our confirmation. 
So Jesus takes it back uh, during the tribulation period, and that's a big part of the tribulation is he is taking back the earth from Satan so that it is now the kingdom of of, uh, God's Christ, the Messiah, and he sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. So in order to do that, he has to show the bloodline. You say, wait a minute, he doesn't have to do any of that. He's God. Well, you find in your study of the Bible that when God lays out, if you will, the rules of life, God plays, (laughs) that's not a good word, but God deals uh, with the rules that he laid out for man. That shows his, his, his wonderful relationship that he has with man. That he says, "Look, if I give these rules to you, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow the rules too." So basically, he is showing, and we see it here in Luke, the bloodline directly from Jesus all the way back to Adam. The man who lost the earth is going to be redeemed by a man in the bloodline, and also the blood avenger. Uh, Jesus will play the role of the blood avenger as well, and what. An individual, an entity that brought pain and suffering and ultimately death to someone else in Jewish society, someone in that person who was harmed or killed, someone in their bloodline can ha- can take revenge, called the blood avenger, can take revenge on the perpetrator of that crime. And that's another thing that Jesus does. So not only does Jesus come back at the second coming because of his bloodline connection with Adam to take back the earth, but because of his bloodline that runs right through the middle of Israel, the righteous Israel bloodline runs through right into Jesus, that he can be the judge of those who brought harm and destruction and death to Israel. So it's an amazing story in the Bible, an amazing account. Uh, if you just let it lay out uh, literally from Genesis to Revelation, you see these wonderful threads that run all the way through. So one of these threads I wanted us to see, because I've talked about this bloodline, is in Luke chapter 3, and I pray that you have your Bibles open with you. If you look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, when he began his ministry, referring to Jesus, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So from that particular verse, you can see where the understanding was that Jesus was born of a man and a woman. So therefore, he was son of man. He was the son of a man, the son of Joseph. And to this day, those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God by default, if not directly by design, believe that Jesus is simply a man in history like anyone else, born of the union of a man and a woman. But if you stay in Luke chapter 23 and, or excuse me, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and then scan all the way down to the last verse in that chapter, so that would be Luke chapter 3, verse 38, it says, Again, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we see that Adam, in this genealogy, is referred to as the son of God, yet Jesus is not referred to as the son of God, because this is an earthly way of looking at 
genealogies, if you will. So I wanted to make that point clear. You see the distinction that between Adam and Jesus, that one is the son of God, according to this, and one is the son of man, when we know for sure that the the son of man, excuse me, the son of God is Jesus Christ and no one else. But we wanted to show that there were other entities in the Bible. We went very quickly, we went to Job chapter 1, verse 6, and we showed there that the angels were referred to in Job several times as the sons of God, all right? And then we went to Romans, and we see that one who is filled with the Spirit of God, in other words, a Christian, someone who has believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are a Christian, and therefore they are referred to as the sons of God. And then we went to 2 Corinthians to prove the point as well that they are the sons of God. Why? Because they are a new creation. So the point I wanted to make here, and just to reemphasize it because it's a very key point, is that Adam is is the son of God, is a son of God because he is a direct creation by God or of God, from God. There's no intervening. The angels were all directly created by God. In fact, it talks specifically when it uh, describes Satan. It says, you are a created being on the day that I created you. So angels in Job and other places all through the Bible, those angels are direct creations of God. And the Bible also tells us that angels do not procreate. So it's a fixed group, if you will, a fixed entity of beings, the angels that are sons of God because they are direct creations. And then we come to the church. Those that accept and profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it says that in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. And because you are a new creation, there's only one entity, and that's God, that can create you that way. So you, as a Christian, are a direct creation of God. You have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you. The Spirit of the Creator God has been given to you, and it says in John 14, verses 16 and 17, He comes into you and he is with you forever. And that's just an amazing thing. And perhaps when you you have that realization as a Christian that it's not just a, a title that you have, oh, yes, I'm a Christian and so forth, but when you realize that you are a son or daughter of the living God because you are a direct spiritual creation of God, and ultimately at the rapture you will be a physical creation of God, because you will have your body transformed into a uh, perfect, eternal, uh, imperishable body, so that your body and your spirit will all be perfect, will all be eternal, and then you will be the full uh, son or daughter of God. But as it is right now, you are spiritually, which uh, for all intents and purposes, you are, because the Bible tells us in Ephesians that you have Uh, been guaranteed through the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that all of this will happen. 
that you will have that that glorified, uh, imperishable body, as uh, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. You will have that imperishable body at some point in the future. You know, they say that the day that you accept Jesus Christ, you're saved. The sanctification process afterwards is you are being saved. In other words, you're being uh, improved, if you will, because the sanctification process of a Christian is to make you more and more Christ-like. And then finally, at the point of glorification, when we see Jesus Christ face-to-face, and that would be at the Bema seat, immediately following the rapture of the church, then we are totally saved. Right now, we're spiritually saved. Then we will be physically and spiritually complete. And that's just a, that's the next signless event on the prophetic calendar, and I am excited about it. That's why I always end my programs. If we don't see each other again, if we don't talk to each other again, rather, I will see you in the air because that's the next prophetic event on the calendar. So I wanted to make that point. And then there's one last group. Uh, We talk about Christians and really what makes a person a Christian as opposed to anyone else, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is the point. A Christian has the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. One other place I wanted to take you, because this is a group of people who will be called the sons of God, but it's yet future. Uh, It's after the rapture because it doesn't involve the church. But I wanted to take you to the Old Testament minor prophet book of Hosea. So if you're in the Old Testament, just grab some chunk of pages there, get into the Old Testament. And if you're into Isaiah or Jeremiah in there somewhere, keep going to the right through Ezekiel and Daniel. And when you get into Daniel, slow down because the next book is Hosea. I, I say Hosea, I've heard people say Hosea, if you look at it uh, phonetically. But regardless, uh, I'm going to stick with Hosea. And we want to go to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. And this, Hosea is one of those books that is just chock-a-block full of prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled to this day. And realizing that uh, Hosea, you know, wrote in the mid-700s B.C., you know, 750 years, let's say, before Christ. So that would be 2,750 years ago. Yet a lot of what he writes about is talking about the future of Israel yet to take place. Uh, the glorious uh, coming to, to a, a saving knowledge of their Messiah and coming into the millennial kingdom here on the earth and being made the preeminent people of all the nations of the world. And all the nations of the world will look up to Israel at that point because their Messiah, Jesus Christ, is sitting on the throne in the fourth millennial temple as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we are in Hosea chapter 1, and let's go to uh, verses uh, 10 and 11. It says in verse 10, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are are the sons of the living God. So this is that transition period because right now God has figuratively and to an extent literally turned his back on Israel because of what they did to Jesus, but he has not forgotten them because he is a covenant-keeping God. 
It's merely a period of time where he is testing them, and they know that that's what it is. So they're looking to this tribulation period. They've been told it's going to happen, and then there's going to be the glorious recognition of their Messiah. And at that point, when they see the Son of God, uh, they see Jesus as their Messiah. He says, you will then be called the sons of the living God. And then verse 11 tells you that that um, is a future event when it says, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Well, they have not been gathered together since 931 B.C. That's when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah split. They have not been back together again. So this tells you this is a yet future event. And it says the next line, and they will appoint for themselves one leader. And we've talked about it in the uh, initial series here at Exploring Bible Prophecy when we talked about how uh, specifically uh, Ezekiel talked about how, how God will bring David back. David from 1000 B.C., the, the first major king, uh, realizing Saul was the first, but David being the first God-appointed king of Israel will be brought back, and it's prophesied right there. And they, Israel, will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, The great will, and great for great will be the day of Jezreel. So what a wonderful prophecy here. So this last group I wanted to talk about, and we'll conclude our teaching part today with the understanding that Israel in the millennial kingdom will be called the sons of the living God because they also, like the church, although separate from the church, will possess eternally the Spirit of God. So let's um, move on now as we do on each of our programs into our uh, question and, and answer phase. And we have been uh, working our way through a question from a listener in Abington that has asked, uh, do we know where Israel will be taken to hide from Satan in Revelation 12, 14? And very quickly, by way of review to bring us up to speed, Revelation 12, 14 is talking about the second half of the seven-year tribulation. In other words, the three and a half years, which makes up the second half of that horrible seven-year tribulation on the earth. And in Revelation 12, uh, to gain context and better understanding, uh, which is the inductive way to study the Bible, we went back to verses 5 and 6, and then we went down to verses 13 to 17 to gain a better understanding that this is Satan who is now on the earth, having been thrown out of heaven. He has uh, indwelt, indwelt uh, the Antichrist. In fact, there's only two people in all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, where it tells us that they were indwelt by Satan. One is the Antichrist at the midpoint of tribulation. In other words, after the first three and a half years, when Satan is thrown out of heaven finally, he indwells the Antichrist. And the other person, the only other person, was Judas Iscariot when he betrayed Christ. It says that Satan entered him. A horrible thing. So they are the two people in all the Bible that are called the sons of perdition. So the Antichrist indwelt by Satan is out to absolutely destroy Israel in the second half. And we talked for a bit about um, why this didn't take place in the first half 
because the first half of tribulation is also a horrible time. But you have to understand, you have to rightly divide the word to understand who's having a very difficult time and who's not. And yes, there is a group of people who do not have a, a bad time, if you will, during the first half, and that's Israel. So let me let me back up here just for a minute. We went to Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, and we learned there that a quarter of the earth's population that is living on the earth once the tribulation starts, and remember, the church has been taken away. We've been we're in heaven now, but the rest of the people who are on the earth, one quarter of them die, according to Revelation 6, 8. Then we went to Revelation 9, verse 15, and found out that of all the people that are left after that horrible bloodshed of 6, 8, one third of them are then killed. So when you add that all up, in the first half of tribulation, half the earth dies. Well, that seems like something that Israel ought to be protected from. But then we went to Daniel, Old Testament book of Daniel. We went to that great prophecy passage in Daniel 9, and we went to verse 27. And there in verse 27 of Daniel 9, we learned that the Antichrist, at the beginning of the tribulation, in fact, this is the event that starts the seven-year tribulation, he will enter into a peace treaty with Israel. It says with the many, but if you go back up to 24, Daniel 9, 24, it says this whole passage is about Israel. So he enters into a peace treaty with Israel, and of course that's confirmed elsewhere in, in Isaiah, called a peace treaty with Satan, and they enter into that. So in the first half of all the people of the earth, Israel is being protected from all of this death and destruction. They're being protected by the Antichrist. They believe that the Antichrist is the Christ, that he is the promised Messiah that has come back to them. That's how much of a uh, perfect liar um, and deceiver that the Antichrist is going to be in the first half. As a matter of fact, he's going to allow Israel to build their temple, their third temple, and this will be a temple built in unbelief because they will not recognize the true Messiah. And at the midpoint, they will actually allow this Antichrist to enter in, into the temple, and he will desecrate it. And Jesus refers to that in Matthew 24 when he talks about how Daniel described the abomination that leads to desolation. So at that midpoint, we learn in Daniel 9.27 that the Antichrist breaks that peace treaty and that's when Satan comes down out of heaven and the peace treaty is, is null and void and they go after Israel, the Antichrist indwelled by, the, uh, by Satan. They go after Israel. And as we learn in Revelation 12, the passage uh, that we're trying to answer here, in Revelation 12 we learn that Satan is out to destroy the entire population of Israel. And he's, he wants to do that because if he can destroy all the Israelites, Jesus will not come back. So that's why we're looking at the um, second half and not the first half. Uh, and in our uh, program tomorrow, we're going to be looking at some passages in Psalms to help us better understand the general belief, if you will, that the Israelites will be hiding in the Jordanian town of Petra during this second half.
Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.